Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Matty. Yes, Mikey. Why do you always start with Hey, Matty? <laughs> How many bones are there in the body? Uh, adult or baby? Adult. Adult. Uh, 260. 260? Wrong. 206. No. No, I, uh, because yeah. I had fish last night. Yeah. And I swallowed some bones. So, obviously, I had 54 bones swallowed. <laughs> You're an idiot. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Today we're talking about bones, everything to do with bones, the anatomy, the physiology, homeostasis, fractures, osteoporosis. By the way, um, babies have 300 bones. Approximately. Mm. Yes. So they've got more. Those uh, 300 bones uh, reduced down to about 80 bones in the axial skeleton which is pretty much the skull and vertebral column and rib cage, and about 126 bones in the appendicular skeleton. Which is appendicular. Appendicular skeleton, which is basically... Everything else. <laughs> everything else, right? Including the ones I swallowed. Including the ones you swallowed, which would have been probably part of the rib cage of the fish, maybe. Possibly. Did you yeah. chew? No, I didn't chew. It's a waste of time and waste of energy. Eat like a duck. (laughs) (laughs) Where should we begin? Bones. Bones, bones, bones. We always think about bones as something to do with the dead, right? Because it's all that's left when we think about uh, people who have passed away or when we dig up remains of individuals who have passed away. Do you do that frequently? Uh, Depends. Depends on the individual. Uh, You find that the the bones are all that's left. So bones are commonly associated with death. And therefore, people think that bones are often this inert, dead structure. But it's not. Bones are actually living tissue, right? In actual fact, it's a specialized type of connective tissue. Right. 
So what does that mean if I say connective tissue? So there's four types of tissue in the body. There's the muscles, which we've spoken about. There's nerves, which we've spoken about. There are connective tissue and epithelial cells. Epithelial, epithelial cells. tissue. So connective. So that's essentially everything else but those other three. <laughs> <laughs> that's so in the name, right? It so connects things together. Yeah, so it puts things together. Anchors structures. And it can be very um, loose or smooth. Yes. Or s- not smooth, should I say? I should say soft. And all the way through to extremely hard, like bone or teeth. Yeah, so connective tissue is quite broad in regards to its physical properties Mm. because blood is connective tissue and that's a liquid. And so is lymph. And fat. And fat, which is sort of like a semi-solid cartilage, semi-solid because it's up to 60% water in cartilage. Uh, And then bone, which is extremely hard, probably one of the hardest substances in the body. And it's all connective tissue. Mm. So the reason why blood is connective tissue and bone is connective tissue, even though one's a liquid, one's a solid, they, they're they both comprised of the same thing, right. which is gels, cells, and fibers, right? Right. It's just the consistency of these gel cells and fibers, basically. Okay. Does that make sense? So you're basically saying that in connective tissue, regardless of where you are, whether it's blood, whether it's fat, whether it's ligaments, whether it's tendons, whether it's bone, yep. it is made up of the same constituents, which is fibers. Yes. Now, these fibers... C- cells. Yes. And a fluidly-like substance. Fluidly, yeah. yeah. Now, we invent words on this podcast. Oh, it's an So, the, the fibers are usually three different types in the subcategories, which we won't go into, but the three types of fibers in connective tissue are collagen fibers, which are like steel rods with a bit of bend to them. Yeah. They're the hardest type. They're the strongest like type of fiber. steel rope. Okay, steel rope is probably better, right? Like steel cables. Even better steel. Okay. So collagen is like steel cables. Reticular fibers are like mesh networks. Like a fishing net? Like a fishing net. And then elastic fibers are like rubber bands. Rubber bands. So these are three types of fibers. Didn't you say five? No, I said three. Okay. I said the subcategories of each. All right. It's like like type one collagen, type two collagen. But it doesn't matter at the moment. The cells depend on the tissue. So if it's... By the way, when you say one and two and three, how do you spell bone? Uh, B-O-N-E. Okay. So it's got like one in it. Yes, B, yeah, O-N-E, yeah. Yeah, so in bone, type 1 collagen. Oh! Like that? Oh, and so cartilage has two in it, and so <laughs> it's type 2. two is yeah, okay, yeah, Anyway, um, so the cells depend on the type of connected tissue. So if it's cartilage, the term we use, the prefix we use for cartilage is chondro, right? Mm-hmm. So a chondrocyte. Like you're a, like a hypochondriac. Do you want to explain what? No. Hy- yeah, okay. Hypochondriac simply means underneath cartilage. Why? Because it's referring to the area of the abdominopelvic cavity right. called the hypochondriac region, which is the area underneath the ribcage. But is, was that not in reference to what's actually anatomically under there? Like, I don't know, liver, spleen, which makes you a hypochondriac? Not makes you a hypochondriac, but they thought that that area where the liver and spleen is located, when I say that, I mean the ancient Greeks, they thought that that was the site of melancholy illness and that's where right. it all originated from so that was a spleen right because you're yeah got a lot of melancholy in you and it's all in my spleen because you got a bad humor but well there's many humors let's not go into all that type of stuff the cells have to do with the connective tissue so if it's cartilage they're called chondrocytes okay. right if it's bone they're called osteocytes makes fat, sense fat lipocytes adipocytes oh <laughs> 
Fair adipose enough. tissue. Oh. Oh, they probably could be called lipocytes. Who knows? I think adipocytes. Who cares? Correct. That's not the topic of today. <laughs> Let's go to bone. So we know bone is a specialized type of connective tissue. Has cells, many different types. We'll talk about shortly. Uh, and has oh, we didn't talk about the gels. Now the gels, I was ground like substance. To, it's called also called ground substance, and it's uh, basically like a fluid-like material. Think of it like jelly. When you make aeroplane jelly at home every evening. <laughs> it's like that. And so if you make a jelly, you know, jelly doesn't have much of structural integrity to it, right? It's very wobbly on the plate. But if you were to embed fibers into that jelly, it makes it more structurally sound, right? And the more fibers you embed and the stronger the fibers, the more structurally sound the jelly is. That's the difference between all these connective tissues. Yeah, it's good. So when we've got cartilage, it, it it's predominantly... Uh, water with a few collagen fibers, type two collagen fibers, and was some that, elastic fibers. What did you just say? Collagen. Yeah, but what what tissue? Ligament. Oh no no no! I I said cartilage. Oh cartilage. Yeah. All right. Yeah, a lot of water, type two collagen fibers, some elastic fibers as well, and you'll find that it has this compressibility to it, mm-hmm. and that's because there's a lot of water there, so yeah. it's it's movable, it's fluid, right? But bone is very hard because it's got huge amounts of collagen fibers embedded in it, plus some other things which we're going to talk about shortly. Yeah, so that's a good point. So basically, we've got the same type of connective tissue. Bone has got the same constituents as as ligaments, let's say. Ligaments, tendons. Yeah. Um, so Meaning like, cells, gels, and fibers. Yeah. Like we spoke about many podcasts ago when I said that um, it's not like when you form tissue in the body from the embryo we we develop just bone and then just muscle yeah. and then just tendon no they've all come from a kind of a mesenchymal structure and then they've differentiated in different ways so when you look at say muscle into tendon into bone they still have all the collagen but the way that that collagen is further developed yeah. will then change its overall appearance and so when we look at bone it's got a tensile strength just like um, ligaments do or tendons do mm. tensile is in difficult to rip, rip apart yeah. because of the collagen but bone then has compressional um, strength and which, that's due which, to something else right which ligaments tendons don't have anymore yes so load bearing load bearing and they can put forces through it without you being like you said just like a bowl of jelly mm. um, and that gives you compressional resistance and that's done by um the salts that are put into the into the collagen. So that's basically like if we keep using the the, the jelly and um, analogy, yeah. that just like uh, cartilage and ligaments, for example, like you said, that jelly has cells and fibers embedded in it for bone and cartilage and and ligaments. But bone tends to have, like you said, some salts added to it, mm. and these salts are like you adding concrete yeah. right to yeah. the jelly, which hardens it up. Or cement. Which one's first? Cement is the powder, isn't it? You're talking to someone who hasn't performed manual labor for a second in their entire life. Look at these hands. These You get these hands through years of simply doing nothing. you got a lot of calluses on it. That's because I go to the gym. Or at least I pretend to go to the gym. All right. right why, do we have a, why do we have bones? Why, why do we have a skeleton? Well, there's probably a number of reasons. I still haven't got an adequate answer to this. Well, I do. I'm wondering, because we know that... Well, we definitely know some reasons why we have a skeleton. 
Yeah, actually, I'll come back to this um, pondering in a second. Okay. You well, you start on start off with why we, you know, some of the functions of why we have bones. We okay. say skeleton or bones. We'll say bone. Right. Okay. The reason why we have bone or okay or a skeleton, a couple of different so we reasons. Function of bone slash skeleton. Yeah. One, it assists in movement. Right. Okay. So now, the, now these bones aren't going to move on their own. These bones aren't going to move on their own. So it's that's not like true. It's not like these cartoons. But that I had not finished you making you my have statement. <laughs> skeletons are moving around. You need <laughs> things attached to them. That's right. Uh, bone uh, isn't uh, I- innovated to move. And it doesn't contain the constituents for contraction. Yes. Muscle does, right. which means bones need to have insertion sites for muscles. Okay. So, the skeleton allows for locomotion mm. through insertion sites for the muscular system. Would you agree? Ex- excellent. Cool. And the tendons are the intermediate. So, muscles don't go straight to bones. They go in through a tendon onto the bone. Yes. So, it's that transition point. Yes. Good. Th- one of the other functions is that it protects internal organs and bone marrow as well, which seeps, sits deep within the long bones. So, protection. Opposed to short bones? Don't, ha- don't have bone marrow? Um, no. Different type? So yeah. I mean, red flat bones. Yellow. Flat bones have bone marrow. Yeah, at know. least red bone marrow. Long bones in adults have... Mm. Yellow bone marrow. And red at the ends. And red at the ends. But do short bones have marrow? Yeah, I reckon they would all. So you're saying the carpels of our hands have marrow? I don't know if they do. I reckon they'd have. I reckon they would. Probably. Maybe to a degree. Maybe to a degree. They're not going to be fully dense connected. If anyone knows, let me know. (laughs) I'm sure I could just look it up, but I'm not going to do that. All right. And another function is that it is a, a site for storage of a very important uh element, which is calcium. Yep. Phosphate, calcium. Yep. What do you... Now, you said you've been pondering upon the function of... Just, just while you're there, it was, it's also important for weight-bearing support. Did you say Did I not say that? No, I didn't no, say that, actually. That's a good point. Weight-bearing and support, yeah. It, it gives us our general shape. So, every human's unique in its shape. Yeah. So, its skeleton is going to determine that. To a degree. I mean, we know that we can alter our shape if I decide to eat a pack of donuts every day and three litres of Coke, that's going to alter my shape. So, the adipose tissue also alters shape. That's true. So, but I would say only to a degree does it give us our base shape, maybe. Yep. So, okay. So, we said that some of the uh, functions of bone in the skeletal system is for movement, is to protect internal organs, mm-hmm. um, such as the rib cage, for example, that it protects the it's heart and the lungs. Right? What's or the even protective? the skull protects the brain. Right. Uh, and for storage, for calcium and phosphate. Yep. And also, like you said, for weight-bearing. So, um, we'll talk about late weight-bearing uh, of bones shortly because this also has to do with fractures. and We're going to talk about fractures and breaks and so forth. Yeah. But you said that you had this, you are pondering about the function of, of bone and you said that you still don't have an answer. Well, what's the question? Well, I guess I just thought um, calcium is a very important because you mentioned it's a storehouse for calcium. Mm. And 99% of your calcium in your body is in your bones. Mm-hmm. Okay, so out of all the calcium that's that's Michael, 99% of your calcium is in bone yeah. form, right? Yeah. So that's telling you that it's very important to have that in that region or that you know, location or that type of tissue. 
Now there'd be a reason for that. Now I'm guessing that calcium is not a substance that does well with trying to be dissolved in a liquid because it precipitates pretty easily. Insoluble. And forms, um, what would you say, like crystals. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want that kind of happening in your blood. You don't want crystals forming in your blood or in fluid. You can probably see the most common, for example, you see that one of the most common type of kidney stones is a calcium-based kidney stone. Yeah. And that's probably because, um, I'm guessing, you know, the person's either not drinking enough fluid mm-hmm. and they're a bit over dehydrated for too long, um, as in not just hours, but weeks, days, months, years, decades, and the calcium pre- pre- precipitates in the um, nephrons. Mm-hmm. And that will slowly get bigger and bigger into a stone. And people who have passed a kidney stone will know how painful that is. Yeah. So you don't want that, the same thing to happen in your blood. So we need to have a storehouse for it. And I'm just wondering if we've evolved to form a skeleton. Now remember, uh, animals have either an exo or an endoskeleton. So it's not like all animals have... If they have a skeleton at all. Yeah. They don't have the skeleton we do. You know, some animals... Vertebrates do. Yeah, but fish also have... Michael loves discussing fish. Yeah. Um, it's because you bring up fish every episode. <laughs> you're either eating them or you're talking about how comparable they are to us. Yeah, so uh, fish still have an exo- exoskeleton yeah. and that is their scales. Right? Sure. You know, turtles, they have an exoskeleton. And then we go into the endo, which is ours, you know, within the tissue. Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering... What's your question? My, my question <laughs> is, I'm, I'm wondering, do we develop this skeleton exo or endo first as a storage storehouse of calcium? So you mean ev- like evolutionarily speaking? All the other functions that you just mentioned, such as protection, weight, etc. So you're, the question you're asking is, is, was our skeleton selected for through evolution and natural selection? As a means, simply as a storehouse, before it being as a protective mechanism. Yeah, and then then later the that organism. That I don't know the answer to that, but I honestly think that possibly both evolved together. Okay. I would say that we had a, we needed a protective means. We needed a protective skeleton, and that uh, depositing calcium to ossify connective tissue, um, or calcify connective tissue, um, was probably the best way of doing it. And at the same time, stored as a st- uh, uh, worked as a storehouse. So yeah. I reckon two birds, one stone. There, in all honesty, I might be wrong. I'm often wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the time. At least you admit Most it. Most things that come out of my mouth are incorrect. <laughs> so, okay. So we've spoken about the function of bone. What about how do we classify bone? There's many different ways we could classify bone, right? Uh, there's two main ways that I'm aware of. Uh, what are they? Um, Classifying bone as in region, so where in the body mm-hmm. these bones are, and so the two main regional. So we're, now we're talking about the skeleton. Mm. Um, we're going to focus on humans now. Um, Thank God. <laughs> endoskeleton for us. So we humans don't have an ex- exoskeleton, but our skull is a composite of both. Actually, so we it has it's come from both exo and endo. Anyway. Um, Even though it's still endo because we've got hair and skin yeah, connective yeah. tissue covering it. Right. Um, now, in the skeleton, the human skeleton, um, it can be broken into two categories based on region. 
So you can have your axis. So the axis of your skeleton is say skull vertebra mm -hmm. and structures that are intimately attached to the vertebra, such as the ribs. Yeah. And then say the um, sternum. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the, your that's axis. Okay. Okay, and then you go to the appendicular, which is kind of the girdles, which attach off it's the a axis. Girdle, the connection point. So, so like the shoulder girdle and the hip girdle is what you're referring the to. Pelvic girdle. Or the so they basically connect the extremities girdle. to the axoskeleton. Mm. And then the extremities just hang off those girdles. Okay, so, so your upper limbs hang off the pelvic girdle. The pelvic, <laughs> sorry, really? the <laughs> pectoral girdle. Yeah. So the pectoral girdle is going to um, consist of the scapula and the clavicle. Yeah. Okay. And then what hangs off that would be the humerus and then the rest of your arm, both sides. And then go down to your pelvic girdle, which is intimate. So this is going to be your hip. So that's going to be your three, well you've kind of got three hip bones mm -hmm. on either side. And that gives you kind of the pelvic girdle, which goes into the sacrum and coccyx. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what hangs off that girdle is your femur, which is the equivalent to the humerus, and then you've got your lower limbs. Gotcha. So you can classify based on the regional way. Or the other one is you classify your bones based on how they look, their shape of them. I just ask you a quick question. We're going to go back to animals now. When we look at... So we're bipedal. Yeah. So our hind limbs all our extremities, have evolved to have a relatively separate function to our upper extremities and obviously separate. It looks different, right? But yeah, like you yeah. said, they're, they're sort of comparable bones. Homologs. They're homologues of each other, right? Mm. So does that mean for animals on all fours such as a dog, do they have four humerus bones or do they have four femurs? Don't know. Or are the front two humerus and the hind two femurs? I'm not sure. That's a good question. There is... Um generic terms we use or I shouldn't say we because I'm not part of the group um, I'm not sure the actual classification of scientists that study comparative anatomy comparative anatomists? maybe <laughs> um, there are terms for the upper limb sorry the upper bone then the, then the um, the next two down and then the carpals and then the phalanges there mm -hmm. are, there's terms for all those um, like podia get the name of it now anyway i don't know yeah i don't know what if it's called the humerus or the um femur I, okay. i'd imagine it's probably not called that you googling it i'm googling anyway, it while you're googling moment. it i will uh, go through the classification of the bone by appearance so the first one are the long bones the long bones is obviously named because they are longer in length and they are wide so it looks like the front two are the humerus and the back two are the femur so just like us radius ulna for the f forelimb and the, uh, the f uh, tibia and fibula for the hind limb. Okay. There you go. Mm. So does that mean... Okay. No, I got you. Okay. So you've got the first one. That's long bones. Long bones. Then obviously the, the opposite of long is going to be short. Yes. So they're going to be probably wider than they are long. Or as wide as they are or long. long. Yeah. yeah. So they're more cube-like. Mm-hmm. And the best example are the ones that are in your wrist or in your ankle. And so... So your carpals? Yeah, so the carpals... So if you looked at your hand now, the carpals are kind of sitting right in the 
fleshy part of your palm. Yeah. So right in there is where your rows, two rows of carpals. Yeah. Okay. And then the equivalent is down in your foot, which is kind of, these are a bit bigger bones because they're load bearing. And so your heel and kind of the arch of your foot and the intimate ankle is the equivalent to the carpals. So they're short bones. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then we go to flat bones. So these are bones that are, you know, been like run over. And so they're really flat. What are some examples? These are commonly in your skull. Mm -hmm. So your brain case. So these are the ones that are around your brain itself. So you, your forehead, if you've got a frontal bone, going slightly behind, you've got two parietal bones. And then going to the back of your head, you've got the occipital. And then kind of out to an area of your um, temples, is you've got your temporal bones. Now, Temporal bones probably a mixture of, but they can be flat as well as kind of irregular. And then you go into obviously the next one, which is irregular bones. Yep. Irregular bones irregular. are irregular. Irregular. They yep. look irregular. Okay, so they have odd like vertebrae shape. Okay, so they've got weird looking processes and they're just not um, uniform, let's say. Okay. And the good examples, like you said, are the vertebra. So how many vertebrae do we have? Uh, so we've got how many? We got seven cervical, twelve thoracic, five lumbar, and some fused sacral, fused coccygeal. I don't know, thirty-three, thirty-one. I think thirty-one. And so they they are going to be irregular, and then you've got some facial skeleton, which are all the funny-looking bones around the front Especially of your yours. face. Yeah, they're irregular. So that's four. There's one more. Okay, Type. so you said long bone, short bone, flat bone, irregular bone. Isn't there a sesamoid or sesame oil or sesame seed bone? Sesamoid. I'm pretty it's sure it's the last two. <laughs> What's Se a sesamoid? Sesamoid. 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 Yeah. Okay. Uh, these are bones that are located within a tendon. Okay. Like, what's an example well, of this? Well, the best example is your patella, which is your kneecap. Okay. okay. So that's intimately fused into your patella tendon. So the patella sort of like floating there, right? Yeah. And it's attached uh, like superiorly, inferiorly through patella tendons. Well, if you want to be accurate, anatomically at least. Which I do. Um, you've got your quadriceps, which are the four muscles on your front of your thigh. Yeah. They merge into one tendon. Okay. That tendon then will go into that bone, the patella. Yeah. Okay. So what's that tendon called? Quadricep tendon. Oh, okay. Okay. And then from that patella to your tibia, which is the bone in your shin, yeah, there's um, a ligament. Because right. now you're going from the patella to the tibia, so it's now bone to bone. Gotcha. So anything that connects bone to bone is a ligament. Yes. So this now has to ah, be... Ah, so it's a tendon above, ligament below. Yeah. Gotcha. But many people will just call them the same thing. Right. So. But to be specific, tendon above, ligament below. Yeah. Because tendon's going from muscle to bone, mm -hmm. and ligament's going bone to bone. Right. Cool. All so right. That's, that's the five... Classifications, right? Yep. And are you happy with the examples and their basic definition? Yeah, I think so. I think that's good. Now, do we want to talk about so the two? So if we look at um, flat bones, for example, I've read that they're built by what's called intramembranous ossification. Now, and that long bones that they emerge from what's called endochondral ossification. Mm. So, 
as far as I'm aware, intramembranous bone formation, which I said is for flat bones, so the skull and the sternum, for example, right? That this forms through, they say, the condensation of mesenchymal stem cells. Which so one are we doing first? So we're doing intramembranous. Okay. Okay, so this is flat bones. So it's mm. saying that to form flat bones, yep. mesenchymal stem cells... Mm. Now, mesenchymal stem cells are basically these cells that don't know what they want to turn into yet, but they yep. do know they want to turn into connective tissue. Yeah. So they want to turn into blood, bone, cartilage, ligaments, tendons, fat, but it's not sure. Yep. Right? Yep. Now, to create flat bones, mesenchymal stem cells will condense together and they'll turn directly into osteoblasts, which is, which is the bone-building cells. Yeah, right? yeah, I think that's I think that, that's fair. And we'll introduce no, these cells in a second. There's no precursor. Bef- that's right. So okay. you have two layers of a fibrous tissue, yep. which is the membrane, and then you have um, osteo a pro- osteoprogenitor stem cell come straight in, yeah, and then start laying down bones straight away. Okay. So there's no intermediate cartilage. Yes. And so a good example is your skull. Yep. And so this is happening in the embryo. And so you've got these flat sheets of fibrous tissue, and then you have these um, ossification points in your skull. So let's say um, your parietal region. How would you describe this on the radio? Just right uh, here above your temple. To. Okay, so point. Go to your temple, and then yep. just go slightly. Keep yep. going slightly up. Yeah, five, five to five to ten centimeters. Yeah, so about there is where this ossification center is going to start. And it kind of just starts to radiate, radiate outwards like a snowflake. Okay. Like and that's okay. called intramembranous, intramembranous. ossification. Yeah. And that's where we have stem cells turning into the bone-producing cells called osteoblasts, which yep. now lay down the, ce- the, the gels and the fibers. Yeah, osteoblasts or osteo building cells yep. yes the b think of the b in blast for building yeah that's good. and then the other type i was talking about <coughs> which is the endochondral now endo meaning within chondral meaning cartilage yeah. so there's something here to so cartilage must be an intermediate or something in this in this development so as far as i'm aware during endochondral ossification of long bones right Mesenchymal stem cells differentiate first into chondrocytes, mm. which are cartilage-producing cells, mm. and then these chondrocytes will turn into osteoblasts. Yeah, I think is that right? I think there's conjecture there. Okay. Um, I think it's it's debated whether these chondrocytes will differentiate into an osteo. Mm. Uh, my best understanding, from when I learnt embryology, is they lay down the cartilage first, but then osteoblasts will come in. And they'll take over. Oh, okay. So basically, the chondrocytes lay down cartilage because mm. that's what they do, um, but they don't turn into no. osteoblasts. It's just that the tissue that's laid down becomes ossified by osteoblasts. That's right. Okay. And so my understanding, again, back in the embryo, is this tissue is getting too big, um, too large, yeah, and that tissue starts to become hypoxic, so okay. it runs out of oxygen. And that process brings new blood vessels in, so because the tissue needs more and more oxygen, so it generates signals and chemicals that tell blood vessels to to grow into it, and as it grows into it, it brings 
an osteoprogenitor cell, which then becomes an osteoblastic cell and then starts laying down bone. All right, let's talk about these cells, right? Because we're talking, when saying osteoblast, osteocyte, osteoprogenitor, let's define these cell types. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think the first cell type to define, uh, when we look at mesenchymal stem cells, like I said, these are cells with a blank slate. They don't know what to turn into yet, but they do know they want to turn into some type of connective tissue. Yep. Now, they will, if they want to go down the bone lineage, they're then called osteoprogenitor cells. Yes. So, osteo meaning bone. So, anytime you hear osteo, think bone. Progenitor, we know that to the progeny, to, to produce offspring, basically. Mm-hmm. So, osteoprogenitor cells produce bone cells, right? These osteoprogenitor cells will produce osteoblasts. Osteo meaning bone again, blast meaning to build. So this, these osteoblasts, what they do is they start to lay down around them uh, gels and fibers. So ground substance, so the jelly, right, the liquidy stuff, yep. and then the fibers that are embedded in, in it. So I like to think about it as though it is a, um, a bricky or bricklayer. That's the osteoblast who's putting down the brick, then putting down the concrete. Putting down the brick, putting down the concrete. So the bricks being in the fibers and the concrete being the um, gels or the ground substance, right? Then once an osteoblast is done building the bone around it, it turns into an osteocyte, which simply means bone cell. Mm. And osteocytes are now stuck within that um, bone that it's just built. Just like if a bricklayer was to build a, a wall around it themselves, yeah. they're now bricked in. They can't go anywhere. And neither right. can osteocytes. So osteoblasts turn into osteocytes. The difference is that osteocytes have these big, long extensions, as though their arms are projecting through the walls and holding the hand of the osteocyte next door. And so what they do is they make sure that the environment around them is being maintained. Communicate with each other. They communicate with each yeah. other. If if a brick in the wall falls out, they just fill it back up. Yeah, that's okay. as far as I'm aware. So the cell types are mesenchymal stem cells, which turn into osteoprogenitor cells, which turn into osteoblasts, which then turn into osteocytes. But there's one cell type left. Do you know which which cell type it is? Starts with C. It doesn't. It starts with O because <laughs> it's osteo. <laughs> but the suffix starts with C. Yeah. It's an osteoclast. Right. And if you think of osteoblast as building, then you can think of osteoclast as crushing. And so what osteoclasts do is they come in and they break bone down. So you've got osteoblast building bone, osteoclast breaking bone down. Right. Now, osteoclasts don't come from these progenitor cells. They don't come from mesenchymal stem cells. They actually, well, they probably, no, they do come from mesenchymal stem cells because they come from immune cells. Do immune cells come from mesenchymal stem cells? Uh, no. No, okay. So, immune cells, such as monocytes, which are macrophage cells, what do macrophages do? Macro, large, phage, phage, eater. Yes. So, monocytes, which are macrophages, are cells of the immune system that go around eating up any pathogens or any um, substances uh, or uh, substituents that shouldn't be there. Constituents, sorry. bacteria... Damaged cells, things like cells, that. So, in actual antigens. fact, osteoclasts come from a lineage of monocytes, and therefore they work in a similar way. They look like these big nucleated monocytes, mm. um, multinucleated, which means there's many different nuclei within these osteoclasts, and they come along and they just break the bone down. Okay. 
So they're the cell types. They're constantly doing things. Yes. Yeah. So I think this is a good spot to start talking about uh, bone remodeling, don't you think? Because we've spoken, oh. brought up blasts and clasts. Should we talk about how bones remodel? Do you want to talk more about the microscopic structure of bone? Or macroscopic first, actually. Yeah, I think quickly. And then we can start seeing how they actually work. Because we haven't spoken about the the type of macroscopic bone within long bones and short bones and flat bones and so forth, have we? No. Okay, so do you want to introduce that? All right, so are we doing long bone? Is that the easiest one to do? Yeah, let's do long bone. So take the femur. All right, yeah, do the femur. So if you cut it, um, so just picture your thigh bone. Um, It's got down towards your knee. You've got these two big condyles with two big knobbly ends. And then you go up to where your hip is and you've got this big protuberance, which is like the head of it. And you you always see, you know, cartoons like, what is it, Flintstones? That's probably a bad example because not many people know that anymore. <laughs> um, but you see, you know, the typical drawn bone and it's all, usually the femur, right? Yeah, you are uh, all humorous. No, just like in cartoons. You see oh, when they accentuate it yeah. as though it's got the two big bumps on either end? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say that's the femur. Anyway, so um, let's say you pull that bone out and then cut it right down the length of it. From end to end. Yeah. Okay. And then it just falls in half and you look on the inside of it. Okay. If you look around the outside edge of it, it's got a really thick um, covering or a really thick margin. I'd say a dense margin. Yeah. Right? And the inside of it is either very sparsely filled or completely hollow. Yes. In the middle of it, anyway. In the, in right the shaft the, of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, What about either end? What about the, the, yeah, so the top and bottom? So the Is that dense or empty? That will be dense. So if you look at the two ends, we call the ends the epiphysis. Yeah, epiphysis. Yeah. Physis means growth. Yeah. So epiphysis just means upon growth, on top of growth. Yep. Okay. Then you look at the shaft, so the whole, so if you were to cut off the two ends and just keep the shaft of the bone, that would be the diaphysis, yep. which is just the shaft of the bone. And then you can kind of go towards the point between the epiphysis and the diaphysis, which is the metaphysis. Okay. Now so can't you say epiphysis and metaphysis? You could. Just just to make it easier for, for people to be able to listen instead of you going, epiphysis, metaphysis. Hard word. Like any now, word for you to pronounce. Right in the epiphyseal line. Epiphyseal line. We call that the growth plate. But it, no one knows where that is. That's up in the epiphysis. <laughs> and this line, this growth plate, is the point where the bone lengthens. Now, okay. that will happen up to, you know, late puberty. So, kind of the early 20s is where that. So you're saying in the head, at the head of the bone, yeah, the at the very end, closest to where... The two ends. The okay, ends. two ends of the bone. The sort of the protuberances at either end are called the epiphysis. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. And then the shaft, the, the longest portion is called the diaphysis. That's right. And then the part that connects the diaphysis to the two epiphyses is called the metaphysis. Right. But right in the middle, basically, of the epiphysis, right, there is a line in an adult... Of of dense bone, yeah. but as an adolescent or pre-adolescent or prepubescent, that is actually cartilage, That's right. and that creates growth. That lengthens the bone, does it? That's where well, it the bone lengthens. It just doesn't close there. So, it but that's where the bone lengthens. Yeah, that's right. On either side of it. 
Okay. So it, how does it work? If it's cartilage, does that mean, like you were saying before with endochondral ossification, mm. is that does that mean that cartilage is laid down and then it later ossifies and becomes yes, hardened? that's basically it. Just kind of like a tree, how the tree rings work. Yeah. This is kind of the same thing. It just, every little while, another layer gets put down and that lengthens it. But okay. the, the long bone just gets longer from end to end. And so does that mean that, so if you've got this epiphyseal line or this growth plate, which yeah. is cartilaginous as, as a young'un, yeah. would there be issues if you were to break it? Like if you were to yeah. break the head of your femur, for example, and th- break through that line, does that damage the way that that bone can grow now? Yes. That that's, would be an emergency in pediatrics. So oh, wow. the surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, would have to take that into consideration yeah. to see how the fracture should be. Um, reapproximated or healed, and so that would be a consideration. And and children that have done that, they might have serious problems with the two limbs, so the comparative limbs growing at different rates. Oh. Um, maybe one even stopping growth at that one point. Is there? What if that growth plate um, ossified or hardened yeah. uh, before it should? Does that happen? Yeah, that's uh, well. That's colloquially known as dwarfism. Okay, but medically known as achondroplasia. So chondro's in there. Yeah. Right. Achondro means to sort of negate, and plasia is growth. Yep. Right. So, so, so achondroplasia is to stop cartilage growth. Yeah. And so basically, that means that pre-pubescence or adolescence or early on in development, that that cartilage area on the ends of long bones closes over yeah. and it doesn't allow for growth. Right. So does that mean that those people with a chondroplasia predominantly long bones are they're obviously going to be shortened yeah. hence the shortened stature yeah. but they're all sort of compar- like like the um, yeah, yeah they're all um, how, how should I put it the, um, the proportion yeah the proportion yeah, unlike but the, there's unlike, unlike the fracture point that you spoke about but there's but there's none of this growth plate in skull bones for example so does that mean the head can develop to a normal size it's just the long bones don't well it probably goes back to your intramembranous example so uh, the skull when you're born as a neonate it hasn't closed so the joints between the the skull plates have cartilage between it. Called suture joints. Yeah, and they haven't completely closed. Okay. And you have these fontanelles also, which are um, areas where you have multiple uh, bone plates that are joined to each other. Mm. So you have the anterior fontanelle, which is kind of a You can still feel my baby's fontanelles. And then at the back, the posterior. So the posterior is, I think, closed about six to eight months. Yeah. The front one... Takes up to two years, then. to 18 months. Yeah. Um... And so that's where that's a soft spot. And yes. so that also gives the ability for if the um, the baby or the neonate has an increased intracranial pressure, so there's too much fluid in there, mm. either from a drainage issue of CSF or they've just got um, I don't know fluid in there for some reason. Yep. These bones are, these bones are still open, so that it will allow the skull to get bigger. Ah. And so. Um, which is po- probably to the benefit yeah, probably. of the baby because there would be less pressure on the brain because there's enough give there yeah. because of the movement of the bones. Because for us, if you or I had hydrocephaly, so increased cerebral spinal fluid in the brain, mm. or we had a bleed on the brain, or we had a tumor, yep. uh, there's not much room for movement in that cranial no. vault. And so a lot of pressure gets put upon the brain and can lead to damage. Definitely right, yeah. 
Um, and I, th- I think even some cultures, I'm not sure where, but they've done skull binding oh. um, to change the shape of the baby's bone. Yeah. And so that can actually make the head, you know, much longer or much wider. Remember the Coneheads? Remember the that movie, The Coneheads? Vaguely. Yeah. It was Dan, Dan Aykroyd? Okay. I think so. Anyway, they, yeah, so they're, they're born with cone heads, but there are, like you said, cultures in which they wrap the head to produce a cone. Yeah. And that's simply to do with you moving those plates and then it allows yeah. it to ossify as they get older. That's right. And then there's no shifting allowed. Yeah. It's it's a cone-shaped head. Yeah. And that, that can actually happen um, pathologically as well in development where these plates close, some close too early, which allow the skull to... Ex- continue to get bigger but it gets bigger in a a long mm. length fashion rather than a wider fashion mm. um, the final point I'll just say with the growth plates is a big um, influence on that growth plate is growth hormone and so if you were to have an imbalance of growth hormone um, it would cause the person to grow rapidly ah. and that would cause a, a disease known as gigantism so this Which is we have spoken about before. Is this what Andre the Giant had? I think it is. So he was so if you think about it, so growth hormone comes from the anterior pituitary gland. And so if you've got excessive um, anterior pituitary stimulation or excessive hypothalamic stimulation then this may lead to excessive growth hormone, which yep. leads to excessive bone growth. Such as adenoma or tumor on there. That's right. Yeah. Um, but we didn't also so we spoke about when the growth plate closes over pre-adolescence. But not what happens when it closed. Yes, post adolescence. So with gro- growth hormone. So yeah, what acro- what's acromegaly? That's what I thought Andre the Giant had more so. Okay, okay. So acromegaly. He's probably got a touch of both. He probably grew still, and he had it at the end of his puberty. But he was a big man, obviously. But I think he had think more he had- acromegaly than he did it. Gigantism. Oh, okay. So, difference between di- gigantism and acromegaly is gigantism is continual growth from prepubescence all the way through, which means you mm. get this uniform proportional growth. Yeah, like they get all around as big. Tall. But acromegaly is only once you get this excessive growth hormone release post closure yeah. of the growth plates, which means that you basically get growth, um, the bones don't get longer. But they do get larger. And so yeah. the hands get larger, the head gets larger. So ac- acro means tip, megaly yeah, growth. The, yes. So the tips of bones get megaly bigger. means big. And so um, that, I think, raises to the next point of bone remodeling. Yeah. It's a dynamic process that's always happening. Yes. And so you put stress on your bones, the bones will respond to it by growing in that area. Yeah. So that that's a good point. So... We said that bones are there to uh, basically take some load. And you can have bones taking load in the vertical axis or in the horizontal axis, and they have the capacity to take this load. And one of the things that helps this is the fact that in the middle of the diaphysis, so the shaft, long bones are hollow. And if a long bone is hollow, it means that what happens is when it flexes, there's a neutral point of uh, stress right at the hollow point. So one, the bones are lighter, yep. right? easy to move around. Two, if you have a look at it, if you were to bend a bone, so the f- notice how the femur is sort of curved a little bit? 
has a bit of a especially on you has a bit of a uh, like this con- uh, I would say con- concave pun a valgus or vargus is that what it's called the little yeah. bend in it yeah. which means that when you put pressure on the femur the 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 load doesn't go through the core of the bone doesn't go right down the middle. It basically has a load on one end and then a load on another end mm. and then that load gets um, amplified in the middle. So if you were to get a stick, right, and you were to take both ends of the stick and try and bend it, you know that the stick was going to break in the middle, yeah. right? Because that's where the load gets placed upon, yeah, the middle yeah. of the stick. This happens with bone. So you may think, well, so that's where the bone's going to break. But no, because the bone is hollow, what actually happens is the load gets nullified by the hollow part of the bone and then the load gets reduced. Right. Did you know that? That's interesting. Yeah. So th- there's there's really beautiful images that, that sort of um, demonstrate this uh, a lot better than I can explain it mm. uh, because it's sort of a visual thing that you need to yeah. take into consideration. It's a lot of physics. But uh, it is a lot of physics. But you're right. When it comes to bone remodeling, the more you use a bone, the more you put load onto it, the more you stimulate it to increase the bone density. density right. And so your bone is actually, at any moment in time, 10% of your skeleton is getting remodeled. Yep. And what that basically means, simplistically, is that you've got osteoblast building bone and osteoclast breaking it down. Breaking away, yeah. And so it's this, now, when you're healthy and young, it's a balance, Right. One breaks down, one builds up, one breaks down, one builds up. Okay, but it's still, it's still based on the stresses on it, though. Absolutely. So it's stimulated. This process is stimulated through stress, yeah. right, and through mechanical stress. Mechanical stress, putting pressure on the bone. So weight bearing. That's right. Mechanical weight bearing, and so that also leads to the type of bearing that you put on it is not necessarily a continuous pressure that is important to cause mechanical stress on the bone mm-hmm. it's actually some maximal forces that put on it that's right so a good example so if you're thinking that if you just put continuous force in the bone the bone itself you know logically you'd think would just get denser but actually that's not always the case no and a good example to illustrate this is the way that you can move your teeth in the jawbone yeah so if you were to get braces like that's I called did, a gomphosis joint by the way Okay. We'll talk so about joints soon. Next podcast. Yeah. So if you were to get braces like I did. Yeah, I did okay. because I got wonderful teeth. So what the orthodontist does is put um, really strong glue on your teeth connected to wires mm-hmm. and then tightens it up. And so basically what happens is it's pulling on your teeth on a, in a very constant uniform way right? but your teeth are attached to the jaw which is the bone so th- yeah the ends of your teeth have these little knobbly ends <laughs> and they are in these alveolar so- sockets in your jaw both upper and lower jaw right yeah but since there's this constant pull in a certain direction it's like say a knife if you put a hot knife in butter and just start pulling it in direction yeah it just slides through it oh. and that's what you're teeth are doing ah. they're sliding through your jaw oh, so your jawbone itself is being remodeled ah. to allow that movement to occur wow does that make sense wow just very slowly really slowly that's crazy and that's the way it moves in your in your mouth wow. or your teeth. you can actually go or on youtube jaw. and you can have a look at they do these um you know time dependent photos and they merge it together and you can see the, the movement of the teeth in the jaw yeah. it's amazing 
So, so I but think. Then, but then you compare that to putting a maximum force through the bone. Let's say doing like real strong gym activities. Yes. And then, um, let's say like a tennis player, mm. um, they can have a you know their upper limb because they're putting a lot of maximum force through their upper limb. Let's say you'll find that their bones are maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing, three times more dense than the average person. Yeah, or ten times more dense than you. Right. Yeah. Um, you're pretty dense. Does that make sense? So it makes it's sense. It's actually more the, ma- the maximal that the bone will respond to than just a constant force. If we take it to the other end of the scale, hmm. astronauts go up and spend time in the International Space Station, which is about 300 k's into the atmosphere, Funnily enough, I mean, they, you know, it, they're floating around, right? But there's actually just as, pretty much just as much gravity in the International Space Station being exerted on them as, as there is on Earth. That's why they float around then. Because of the speed that they're traveling, they're in free fall. Oh, okay. That's why they're floating around. They're actually in free fall, but they're free falling around the Earth. So they're actually not getting any closer to the Earth because they're free falling around it. Right, okay. And so, so there's just. still gravity. Yeah, just but as pretty much just as much gravity, but wow. it's like when you go up into an airplane and that airplane decides to drop, I you're in free fall. I haven't done that before. Well, I'm just saying. You know what how kind you, of airline do you go on? To? You know, how you see people they go up into airplanes and they experience what it's like to be weightless, and you see them. They'll we be, saw that with uh, Stephen Hawkins. Yeah, he w- he did that. Mm. So you know, your feet are on the ground or his wheelchair was on the ground, and then as the what happened was the plane started to fall and it just falls at. You know what is it? Nine point three meters per second Eight. per second, or whatever it is, and then you become weightless. That's pretty much what's happening in the International Space Station. Mm. But again, it means that there's no downward force, gravitational force that's being placed upon them, yep. so their bones aren't getting remodeled in the direction of being built up. It gets remodeled in the direction of being broken down. Yeah, and that same goes with um, people who are immobile. Yes, so people who are bed bound. Mm-hmm. They will start to lose the density of the bone, and the osteoclasts yes they break bone more up. active yeah and start busting it up because they're yep. probably thinking oh well, what do we need to have all this thickness mm-hmm. and that's one cause of hypercalcemia yes because now okay let's talk about the role of calcium because we haven't really done that I so think we just have to finish quickly of course if the rest of the that. bone because I think we've just Skimmed a bit. Well, I mean, I don't think we should go into too much detail with it, but I agree. What, what else do you want I to talk about? Before we jump into the physiology completely. All right, so we've done the different locations of the bones, and we've done the diaphysis and etc. All right. Now, if you go into the thickened area of the outer part of the bone... You so mean, I'd say the dense area. The dense so it's not that thick. It's actually just dense. Dense. All right. So it's like a highlighted, you know, let's say a couple millimeters into the bone of really dense thick bone yes okay, from that, the that uh, from goes the outside all the way borders around the bone so that could be the long bone that could be a flat bone that could be any bone has this real thickened area so because dense, it's on the outside dense area and that's known as compact bone or cortical bone because it's often found yeah. on the outside of the right. bone and this really i don't want to go into details of this really mm. but it, it just kind of grows in rings just like a tree does yeah, okay. really compact rings. So one ring is packed upon another. In actual fact, these rings are called lamella, yeah. which means plate. So it's like you're getting plates and you're stacking plates up, but then you... Longitudinally, though. Longitudinally, mm. that's right. And and yes, exactly and they, right. And they're, growth, they're growing around the blood vessel. Okay, yeah. So really this is how 
ossification happens, like I said in the embryo, the first thing that happens is the blood vessel comes in, so the capillary comes in, and then the bone grows around it. Mm-hmm. And so all your compact bone is really just these concentric rings around a blood vessel and, and nerves, um, which is kind of like growth rings. Okay? Yes. And they just next to each other, so they're just neighbor by neighbor, neighbor by neighbor, and they are just what gives the density to the compact part of your bone. And you'll find that embedded in these plates, in these lamella, in these concentric rings, are osteocytes. Yep. And so obviously they were osteoblasts that built the rings, which are just laying down the gels and the fibers. And then calcium came in and hardened it, and it was stuck there. Now they're osteocytes. Yeah. And an interesting fact is that if you take if you were to take a cubic cent a cubic millimeter of of cortical bone, the right? one millimeter by one millimeter. Yeah, not much. A cubic millimeter of of cortical bone. Hmm. Um, there would be up to 25,000 osteocytes in it. Wow. Yeah, so it's huge. Huge quantity of cells inside bone. And you would think because it's the potentially the densest and thickest connective tissue in the body, Mm. you'd think it probably wouldn't have much um, blood, but actually it's very rich in blood. Yeah, it's highly vascularized. So it bleeds very easy if you break your bone. So fracturing will cause bleeding. But that also helps with good healing as well as long as it's realigned. That's a good point because w- when you look at uh, remodeling or when you look at repair, it doesn't matter what we're talking about, what type of tissue we're talking about, the, one of the big factors that influences repair and repair time is blood vessels. So if that tissue that's been fractured or broken or damaged or whatever has a nice uh, vascular supply, It'll repair which faster. Should, which it which should. It should. It'll repair faster. But for those tissues that are poorly vascularized, such as cartilage, right. means if you damage cartilage, it takes such a long time for it to heal and because, and ligaments, um, because they're always considered avascular. The nutrients and and um, the constituents that are required for this repair need to diffuse into that tissue from blood adjacent blood supply that's potentially centimeters, millimeters away. Hmm. That's right. Okay, and if you go to the outer part of the compact bone, so we're going back to the bone again in that thick and dense area. If you go to right on the outer surface of it, it's covered by this um, cling film or glad wrap covering, which is called the periosteum, mm-hmm. which is just the wrapping around the bone, just yeah. like we have wrapping around um, organs such as you know your peritoneum or your pericardium or your pleura. Yep. It just wraps it, but it's highly sensitive so it's got a lot of nerves in it so this is the area that will become highly painful if you break a bone okay and then if you go past the compact bone so you move more deep into the bone you come into a trabecular or a spongy region which actually provides this is surprisingly it provides more of the mechanical stability of the bone whereas the compact bone provides more of the probably compressional strength Mm. whereas this is got a whole lot of cross members in all d- different weird directions, which you, if you looked at it, you'd think is completely irregularly arranged and have no logical pattern to it, but actually it's arranged in a way to, to resist the forces that's going in that particular area. So that's another dynamic. Just like if you s- looked at, say, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, it has all these cross members going in all different directions, but that would provide mechanical stability. 
um, for the loads that put on it. So the way I like to think about it is that the cortical bone that lines the outside of a long bone is very dense, like you said, made up of these concentric rings called osteons, right? That's that's the unit of, and you know, the hole in the osteon, right in the middle, is where the blood fu- yeah. bloods and nerves and all that type of stuff central come through. Canal. It's called the central canal or haversian canal. Yeah. You know, it's just made up of all these osteons, really dense tissue, hence it being called uh, um, cortical or dense or um, compact bone, right? Yeah, yeah. And like you said, that resists load in a particular direction, right? When you go more internal to the bone, you've got what you call the spongy bone or the trabecular bone or the cankylous bone, right? Cankles. And the cankles. And it's got that spongy appearance. Yeah. And like you just said, it looks irregular. And this is an important point when it comes to connective tissue, right? Connective tissue holds, binds, or supports, right? And if it has an irregular structure to it, that's a good indication that it's trying to resist forces coming from many different mm. angles. Mm. And that's what this trabecular bone does. It resists forces from many a- angles. And another example of this type of patterning um, for connective tissue is a type of connective tissue called dense irregular connective tissue. And dense irregular connective tissue is connective tissue that surrounds your organs or called an organ uh, capsule, mm. right? And this protects the organ from pushing and pulling from all different angles. Stretching. And so, and stretch. Because if you look at it under a microscope, it's irregular. It's yeah. got the collagen and the elastic and the reticular fibers in no Origin. patterned way, yeah. right? Um, but if you look at dense regular connective tissue, like these... Tendons and ligaments. Yes, like te- tendons and ligaments, you'll find that those fibers, the, the collagens and the elastic tissue and s- uh, uh, fibers, are arranged basically uh, parallel with each other in the same line, direction. which means they can resist force in a right. particular direction. Yeah. You happy with that? Yeah, that's very good. Okay. And then so that's the two main constituents of that bone that we're trying to describe the femur. But as you move, so in the shaft... Right into the middle, it's now completely hollow. Now, is there anything in there? Yeah. So, in a long bone, that the diaphysis or the shaft is generally filled with what we call a yellow marrow, which is considered to be more fatty in substance. So, I guess it would be considered that it has some degree of energy um, metabolizing um, function. Yeah. And that's why, say, national park persons that are, you know, working in big national parks, like wherever in the world, doesn't really matter, and they find skeletons, they looked at in the marrow of the long bone and they found that it was empty, they could hypothesize maybe that the animals died of starvation. So it's oh, used gotcha. up all its fat. Or another animal could have eaten it. And sucked it out. Yeah. Bone marrow is supposed to be delicious. Yeah. So, I mean, some people who maybe do that with their chicken bones, they might bite off the end and suck out the middle. <laughs> anyway, back to the top end of the femur or the long bone, you'll find that the top end, the knobbly ends, if you bite into them, they'll have much more um, ready appearance. So you're saying that in the in the hollow core of the diaphysis, so if you get a, a, of a, long a chicken bone, bone yeah, and let's say a cooked chicken bone could be easy to do and you just snap it right in the middle of the shaft, yeah. it'll be kind of hollowy yeah. and in the middle will be kind of a whitey, yellowy substance. Okay, and that's okay. you said that's yellow that's bone. That's yellow right? bone, which is yeah. nicely fat. Fat, yeah. Um, but if you go right to the end of the bone yeah. and let's just say you bit it the top off yeah. or you cut it off, let's say with a knife, you'll find it's all red. Okay. Like it's blood. very vascular. Yeah. Oh, okay, why? Okay. 
Well, that's a red marrow. It's a re- so what is red marrow? Well, it's still that kind of spongy bone that you spoke about, but now what you've embedded into that spongy bone is all the blood stem cells. So ah. these are the homo- hem- hematopoietic stem cells. So they produce red blood cells? No, they produce all your blood cells. Even immune cells? Even your white blood cells. Oh, wow. That's right. So okay. if you were to have cancer in this area, you'll get a condition. Most people have heard of leukemia. Ah, blood cancer. Blood blood cell cancer. And so that could result in, because the cancer is now making tumours there, um, it can make um, your white blood cell count goes really high mm-hmm. because you're making heaps of white blood oh, cells. because it's cancer. It's but they're not good white blood cells. They're very undifferentiated, immature red white blood cells. Not doing too And they're much. not going to do anything. So no. you're going to get sick all the time, but your white blood cells are through the roof. Make sense? Yeah, gotcha. Now... The final point I'll say on this, because I don't think we should dwell on it. No. The red marrow, even though you can create red blood cells, or what should I say, you can create blood cells in the end of your long bones, they're not really done. It's not the main site. Anymore. At least for adults. That's 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 a good point. Children will do it. Children will do it. Well, for children, you'll find that where the yellow bone marrow is, so in the diaphysis of the long bones, will be red bone marrow. Yeah, that's right. But as you grow old and become an adult, that red bone marrow turns to yellow and your red bone marrow tends to be more so in the side of flat bones, right? Yeah, that's right. So your skull and sternum. Yep, perfect. uh, And your hip. And so this is the area where you still have red bone marrow. Yeah. And that's the place where you make your new blood cells every day. Which is why if you need bone marrow transplant, the hip is usually the site that they go to. Yeah, probably because it's just bigger. I think it'll be well, harder to stick it's in your skull yeah, or the sternum, even. <laughs> yeah, or your vertebra. V- very, yeah. And this is also probably explains why. This is just my thought. I haven't substantiated it. Yeah, but this not is a probably surprise. Why um, secondary cancers go to areas of red marrow because they're very, very vascular. Okay. So, uh, you know, top three places in your body where you get secondary cancers. We spoke about this in the cancer. Is bone. Yeah. So vertebra probably, mm. uh, is a big place where you'll find your secondary hip. Yeah. Hip hip is a big one for prostate cancer. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So I think that's pretty much macro s- structuring. Do you think it's enough? That's macro into micro? Yeah, that's fine. Enough? I so think we need to start talking about calcium homeostasis. Yeah. That you reckon? So you can take over. Oh, okay. Calcium homeostasis. So we... S- okay. So uh, let's just iterate this point that... With the connective tissue. So if we were to compare cartilage with bone, and we did this at the beginning, but when you compare cartilage to the bone, both are connective tissue, both have cells, gels, and fibers. Uh, both will have collagen. Both will have a bit of water. Well, cartilage has a lot more. Bone has about 15% water. And both have a lot of cells, right? So they're pretty similar. But the thing that makes bone really dense compared to cartilage is that bone has... Uh, all of these, what you called earlier, salts mm. dissolved within the the tissue that hardens that bone. And do you remember what those salts were? Calcium is a big one. Calcium. And phosphate. And phosphate. That's right. So without calcium and phosphate, the bone would not be hard. It would be bendy, similar to cartilage, right? You agree? Or probably rather than say cartilage, probably closer to ligament tendon. Okay. Like but it'll really, be bendy. Really bendy. Okay, so this is important because what these calciums and phosphates, which or is, calcium and which phosphate, is like the cement that you spoke about, which is like that cement I spoke about, what they are, 
are, are what we call the inorganics. So the gels and fibers are called the organics. Because it's got carbon in it. Yeah. And the calcium and phosphate are the inorganics. It doesn't have calcium. So the rule of thumb is this. You need both the inorganics and the organics to have normal, healthy, hard bone. Right? Mm. That strength and so forth. If you take away the inorganics, the calcium and phosphate, bone becomes bendy. Rubbery. Rubbery. Yeah, rubbery is a great way of putting it. And you can actually do this as an experiment by putting bone, get a chicken bone, put it into vinegar. I thought you were going to say you keep your child in a cellar. In a vat of vinegar. <laughs> in a cellar. <laughs> well, you could do that. We'll talk about that in a second. But if you take a chicken bone and put it into vinegar for a couple of days, what vinegar will do is strip out the inorganics, the calcium and phosphate. Take the bone out, it'll be bendy, right? Mm. We, or, did that, we did that in experiments. We, yeah, we did in, that for our as students. As in like in our first year experiments. Teaching. Teaching first-year students. Or, if you want to take out the organics, you can bake the bone. The high temperatures get rid of... Don't bake your child. Don't bake your child. Uh, the high temperatures get rid of the gels and the fibers. The collagen. The collagen uh, and the ground substance. Gets rid of those, and what you're left with is basically just these... the, the Really brittle bones. Really brittle bones because it's just the calcium and the phosphate. Mm. So, it's very light because all the organic stuff's gone, but it's very brittle. Okay, hard but brittle. Okay, that's so probably why bones shatter easier after you cook them. Correct. So now that I put that into place, it's obviously important that we need calcium in bone to maintain its strength. And what kind of strength? Tensile strength. Tensile strength. Hmm. Okay, so that is one important reason why we need calcium in bone, but it's not the only reason. So calcium. And, and maintaining normal calcium levels. Remember, like Matt said earlier, 99% of the calcium in the body is stored in the bone. Okay, And we need calcium not just to maintain bone strength, but for a number... It's, it's critical for survival for at least three reasons. Okay, The first reason... Is this just calcium now? This is just calcium, okay. right? The first reason... So this is just calcium in the body. First reason why we need calcium is that serum or blood calcium levels regulates the degree of membrane excitability for muscles and nervous tissue. Okay. So what that means is that calcium will allow our muscles to contract and calcium will help our nerve fibers to send signals. How? How? We've already done an episode on this, but very briefly, when calcium jumps into a muscle cell, muscle cells contract. Yeah, no, when I'm calcium jumps into a nerve cell, it helps to send a signal from one nerve cell to, a, to the next. Yeah, the, new, the release of the neurotransmitter. That's right. Yeah, Just testing you. Well, I know this stuff. So that's the first reason why we need calcium, right? And we need to maintain calcium. This is the point, maintaining calcium right. and homeostasis. Second reason why we... Now, maybe if I were to keep on this point, if you increase serum calcium, it can lead to muscle weakness, right? Coma, muscle weakness. If you decrease serum calcium, it leads to overexcitability that translates into convulsions and spontaneous muscle contractions and cramps and all this type of stuff, okay? Something so called tetany. That's too much or not enough? That's, it, that's if you don't have enough. Oh, wow. So reductions in serum calcium. But too much gives you weakness. That's right. It's got to do with ref what's called refractiveness. Refractive period. Yeah, in the refractive period. We won't go into that at the moment. But just know that okay, too much or not enough so results tissues, in, yeah, damages your one. excitable tissues. Number two. Okay, number two is that 
life on land, basically, that have skeletons. Oh, now we go into the vertebra- uh, comparative anatomy. Oh. Is that obviously calcium is the major structural component. Right. Okay. So we need that for, for, for structure. All right. The third. Could you do it with other things though? Yeah, but we don't. I'm just wondering though. Could you do it with something else but calcium? Anyway, go on. Anyway, maybe other salts, but I don't. But we don't. So there's a reason why. Um, and the third reason is that intracellular calcium, so the calcium inside the cells, plays a very, very important role for numerous types of cell signaling. So tells the cell to do something or release something. Tells the cell whether it should stay alive or kill itself. Like calcium is really important for bit, signaling. Bit harsh. Well, that's just what it is. Is that apoptosis? That is... Uh, Isn't that calcium release like becomes abundant just before the cell yep. kills itself? Huge calcium flux prior to cell death. This has to do with the mitochondria, has to do with capsase 9, has to do has to do caspase 9, has to do with a bunch of other stuff. So that's, calcium is super important for the survival of cells so is my three. point. Is that right? That's what I said. Three there's is one more. excitability. It's probably the probably in the third, but it's not a big one. So okay, so excitability, mm. maintaining bone integrity, yeah. and uh, cell signaling. Mm. So what's your other one? Uh, blood blood clotting. Ah, a lot of them are all calcium dependent. Well, that's cell signaling. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So calcium actually. So you bleed out without I- calcium. If you have a look at. Any type of cell signaling, there's going to be bloody yeah. calcium involved, one way or another. Yeah. Okay, so... And it, what form is this calcium in? Okay, this is where I'm going to move on to now. Oh, okay. Serum calcium. So this is just calcium as the atom. In your right? blood. In your blood. Calcium not as an ion. Remember, an ion is a charged atom or element. So calcium as an ion, it is a cation. What's that mean? It likes... Felines. Yes, which means it's positive. <laughs> so it's Ca2+. That is the ion, the way you write calcium as an ion. But if you don't look at calcium as an ion, just look at serum calcium. Calcium overall. It's around about 2.4 millimoles per litre in your blood. Okay. Okay? 2.4 millimoles per litre. About 1.2 millimoles, so about half of this, is bound to proteins. Albumin. Right. right. Yep. So albumin's a protein in your blood. Albumin's a protein. So, so it carries calcium. About half of that. Oh, it's about half. Around about fifty-ish. Really? Percent. Yeah. Around about. About half of that. No. No. I'm lying. Around mm, about. So. No. 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 I was right. So again. Are you two, saying bound? Okay, let me say it again. <laughs> Serum calcium overall about two point four millimoles per liter, around about. Bound to albumin or serum proteins. Calcium is about one millimole per liter, 1.2 millimoles per liter. So it's about half, right? About 0.125 millimoles per liter circulates as these insoluble complexes. So it's bound to stuff that's not proteins. So, so but it's still bound to anions. Still bound to things like uh, sulfate and phosphate and citrate. Carbon, carbonate. Carbonate. So, because it's got a plus charge, it needs to bind to something negative. That's right. The remaining about 1.2-ish millimoles per litre, right, is free or unbound or is as ionised calcium. Yeah, so it's ionic. So around about 50%-ish mm. is, a, is calcium as an ion. Okay? And that's its functional and that, that's, form. Yeah, that's, that's the most important form clinically. Yeah. Right? This is what plays a role in excitability of so cells. So all this those is three things you mentioned, it needs to be in its ionic form. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. So... Another important point is that when you measure ions in the blood, right? When you measure sodium ion, 
potassium ion, you measure the ion. But when you measure calcium of the blood, serum calcium, you actually measure it often as just as calcium, non-ionized calcium. But you can get the difference. Yes, that's right. So, um, and that's because you also want to check the level of calcium in the blood because of its role in bone physiology, right? So you need to check free calcium as well, total serum calcium. All right. Now, calcium is involved in bone maintenance. We need to talk about this, okay? So the question is, how does calcium get deposited? How does calcium get released? So if we need to deposit calcium into bone, it means we need to build bone up. Yep. If we need to get rid of it, it means we need to break bone down. Yeah, yeah. And this gets stimulated, like you said, through stresses on the bone, okay? Now, this has to do with osteoblasts. hormones as well. Yes, hormones as well. Okay, so there are three really critical regulatory um, processes that maintain blood serum calcium. Okay. Okay? Particularly the ionic form. Particularly, and let's let's just focus predominantly on the ionic okay. form. Right. So, remember homeostasis, maintaining an appropriate balance. Yep. Calcium needs to be at its, which is around about 1 to 1.2 millimoles per litre in the blood, right? Yep. If it goes too low, we need it to technique. pull calcium out of the bone. If it goes too high, we need to deposit calcium into the bone, roughly speaking. You agree? Because, because 99% of that ionic calcium is where? In the bone. In the bone. That's right. So I said there's three main regulatory ways of doing this. One is intestinal. Two is the kidneys. Three is the skeleton. So these three body functions or body systems... Handle the calcium. Handle calcium. So should we talk about it? Yeah, I think at the same time you should mention the three ma- hormones that partake in it as well. And then okay. we can put it together. All right. Well, okay. Because it'll be part of the process. Totally. Parathyroid hormone is very important in bring, bring increasing yeah. blood calcium. Yeah. Parathyroid hormone is a hormone that's released by the parathyroid glands, which, which sits behind your thyroid gland, yeah. which is sitting anterior to your trachea. Yeah, yeah. Right? Right at the front of your neck. Right at the front of your neck. Okay, so that's one hormone. Mm. Another hormone is that is uh, activated vitamin D. Yeah. Now, this is important because vitamin D activation is actually relatively complex and that you've got two main vitamin D compounds. Um, I think we'll skip that. Just say, we'll just keep it as activated vitamin D. Okay, which through your liver and your kidneys, okay, through your skin absorbing skin. UV yep. and then your liver and then your kidneys after going through these three processes, that's when you get activated yep. vitamin D. Brilliant. Okay? All right. And the last one, which I don't think we need to talk about because the evidence is starting to be mounted up against it, actually playing any physiological role, is calcitonin. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, and calcit- so both vitamin D and uh, parathyroid hormone help increase blood calcium levels. Calcitonin is supposed to do the opposite, decrease blood calcium levels by... Uh, promoting its deposition into the bone. But more and more evidence states that it actually doesn't really play much of a regulatory role at all. Okay. Yeah. Good so I'm going to ignore it. Is okay. that okay? I think it's good that we stated it because most textbooks and yeah. most um, curriculum will still have that as the, the main paradigm. Totally. So it's good that we mentioned it. Yeah. But anyway. The, ro- the role is limited. Okay. All right. So let's. I think we should... V- and I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on this, but the kidney is probably the most important of these three. And the reason why is because kidneys filter 120-odd litres of blood every day, right? Which means the calcium that's in your blood, it's going to be measured, it's going to be filtered, it's going to be either reabsorbed or excreted, 
right? Interestingly, your kidneys filter about 10,000 milligrams per day. That's two teaspoons of, of just calcium ions. That's heaps. That is a huge amount of calcium that the kidneys filter. Now, like you, the skeleton holds about 1.2 kilos of calcium, right? For males and about one kilo of calcium for, for females in the form of it as hydroxyapatite. So calcium's bound to a, another structure and it creates hydroxyapatite. That's what makes it hard. All right. What happens is when your blood serum, your blood, sorry, when your serum calcium drops too low, this stimulates your parathyroid glands to release parathyroid hormone. Your parathyroid glands are so sensitive to a drop in blood serum of calcium that it will respond. So if your blood serum calcium dropped by 0.025 millimoles per liter, mm. that's enough to stimulate parathyroid hormone to be released. That's a very minor drop. So blood serum calcium drops stimulates parathyroid hormone to re- uh, parathyroid gland to release parathyroid hormone. Yeah. This does a couple of things. One, it goes to the kidneys and tells the kidneys to reabsorb more calcium into the blood. Right. Right? Yep, yep. Two, it helps vitamin D, which was synthesized ultimately by the kidneys, right, to reabsorb calcium from the... Sorry, not reabsorb, to absorb calcium that's been ingested through food from the intestines into the blood. Yeah. Okay? Um, So, upregulates calcium channels. That's right. And the third thing that parathyroid does is it stimulates osteoclasts to break bone down and release calcium from the bone into the blood. So this is a negative negative feedback of homeostasis. The stimulus was a drop in blood calcium, and the result was to increase blood calcium by kidney reabsorption, through intestinal absorption, and through bone breakdown to release calcium. You happy with that? Yeah, brilliant. All right. That's... uh, all I really want to say about that. And what about the vitamin D? Oh, okay. Uh, that's, that's a good point. Um, so vitamin D is essentially initiated by the conversion. So this is very simplistic. The conversion of cholesterol in the epidermis with the assistance of UV radiation from the sun, mm-hmm. which is the most efficient method of doing so. Yeah. Um, converting it into a inactive form of vitamin D which then goes to the kidney. Liver. Or liver first. Liver first. Okay. Um, which hydroxylizes? Yeah, it, it basically just, it, it changes it into another derivative. And then that will go to the kidney, the proximal convoluted tubule, which will activate, activate it. it. And now it's in its probably most um, affecting form. So it's now basically a hormone, which is yes. kind of a chemical that will change the behavior of cells. Yeah. And so now the vitamin D can also increase calcium. Mm-hmm. And similar way. Yep. So increase absorption in the intestine. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and if so that's that's when the blood calcium drops. Yeah. Okay. But if you ingest a greater than normal dietary calcium, um, this actually only leads to a mild rise in blood calcium. And the reason why is because as soon as your blood calcium levels increase too high, it stops parathyroid gland from releasing parathyroid mm-hmm. hormone. So there's that suppression. And this action automatically, or, or I should say immediately, tells the kidneys 
to excrete more calcium. Specifically, does it at the... It doesn't hold onto it anymore. That's right, the tubules. Yeah. Um, it also immediately decreases the osteoclasts yeah, from breaking yeah. bone down. So it basically does... As soon as the blood calcium incre- it increases, it just opposes those effects that we stated when it, when it decreases. Does that make so sense? It's, yeah, so it's a very sensitive and dynamic system, really. Mm-hmm. And so if we then look at some, some areas where this goes wrong, mm-hmm. um, w- well, we know, firstly, so if you don't get enough sunlight, Yes. Um, so you're not going to be converting vitamin D, and so in an active form. So um, this can be a precursor for, say, poor, poorly dense bones. Yeah. Um, so if this was happening in children, a lack of vitamin D. So this commonly was found in countries that they only get limited amount of sun, yep. particularly um, they have a low level of UV in. Um, exposure in winter so like the arctic countries like russia or norway sweden um the children don't absorb a great deal of vitamin d so that their calcium handling is going to be poor therefore they don't have enough calcium um attached into the collagen fibers now we know again the collagen fibers gives you the tensile strength of bone and the calcium phosphate will give you the um compressional hardness of the bone and so they lose that hardness of the bone and so now the bones go to that bendy like bone mm-hmm. and they can get those real rickety r- bow legs. legs yeah bow legs hence it being well, so rickets yeah rickets is the term used so that's uh, low vitamin d in adolescence leads to bone that uh, has a bend to it yeah now if you look at that in say adults where it's kind of the bone is now it's not going to lengthen Formed. anymore and you're basically going to get a density change rather than a shape change. Yes. Um, then a different process, probably known as osteoporosis, porous, yes. is going to occur. And so risk factors here would be... So we're talking about osteoporosis now? Yeah, sorry. Jump okay. into that. You want to take over? Oh, I just want to introduce the term osteoporosis and yeah. then you can go on. So I was just going to say that the term osteoporosis is... is Greek in origin, osteo again meaning bone, and porosis, like you said, means holes. Yeah. And which mean, and it, this term was created in the 1800s because it was visible. You know, they would take bone and they would see that there's holes in the bone, and so they, you know, physicians would say this is osteoporosis, holes in the bone. Um, and was that just uh, a post mortem inspection? Post mortem inspection. That's right. So. Uh, I'll let you go through a bit of osteoporosis and I'll jump in with some points and facts or do you want me to start well, with some... I can say, start with some stats so, if you want. So we know that osteoporosis at least can be environmentally driven. Yes. So people who are most... Um, so again, you've got to be an, in an adult to be more in the osteoporotic range rather than rickets. Mm-hmm. So the people who have low exposure to um, sunlight are going to be um, the at-risk groups such as people with dark skin. Yes. Um, so particularly dark-skinned people who have moved to countries with less sun, because mm. usually dark-skinned, you're in near the equator where you get a lot and a lot of sun. Mm. So but remember, so you're going to make the point that dark skin, uh, uh, it shields the the melanin, the the, quanti- the quantity right. of melanin in their epidermis shields the UV being able to reach the cholesterol. Yes. Therefore, they're not making active vitamin D. Yeah. And so. Um, now we find that um, a lot of um, persons from, let's say, the equator have 
spread around the world. Mm. And so these people are more predisposed to vitamin D deficiency. Yeah. And then another add to that is for some, let's say probably more women that uh, wear, let's say, hijab or s- certain coverings. Yep. They're at a higher risk because they don't, they got less sun exposure on their yep. skin. Um, so that's environmental. The other one would be um, exercise and um, exposing your body to mechanical forces and mechanical resistance. That's not putting the pressure on those, the bone to resist it, to um, to grow against it. So those osteoblasts to be activated to tell your microstructure that, you know, there's a lot of force coming through. If we don't do something about it, it's going to break. Mm-hmm. So we need to lay down more bone. So that will strengthen the bone. So people who are more inactive, you know, sedentary jobs, etc., would be higher risk for osteoporosis. So I've got a I've got a table here of a bunch of risk factors. Is, it, is it in a um, mnemonic? It's not in mnemonic because okay. there's about fifteen risk factors. The main risk factor, and it's simple, the main risk factor for osteoporosis is reduced bone mineral density. Like that's so it's reduced calcium and phosphates in the bone. Like that's that's the major risk factor. Um, but the cause of these and other risk factors, I think this is interesting. So I, I can state the relative risk too. So the relative risk is uh, a likelihood of if you sit within this category, statistically how much more likely are you to develop mm. osteoporosis. So hence risk. So that's what's but not the absolute. Relative. So it's so not a guarantee. It's not, no, it's not a guarantee. It's just a relative risk. So, so relative to the population, if you're within this group, this is how much more likely you are yeah. Not, it not, not, not. Uh, it's not prescriptive. It's not exact. But how more likely you are if you sit within this group to develop osteoporosis. So, first thing is that for every five years of age that you are older, you become one point five times more likely to ve- to develop osteoporosis. So, age. Age. If you've got a history of a of a maternal hip fracture, so a mother that's fractured their hip, you're two times more likely. And then when they talk about hip fracture, they usually refer to the neck of femur. Neck of femur. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, increase in weight. Actually, 0.5 times more likely. That's surprising. Right? Surprising. Uh, height. At 25 years of age, 1.2 times more likely. So you're saying the taller you are? Correct. Mm. The use of anticonvulsant drugs, 2.8 times more likely. All Interestingly. Right. Let's just stick with the common ones. Okay, okay, okay. What about diet? Is anything to do with diet there? Diet? Let's. Uh, that's what I'm trying to find. Let's have a look. So caffeine intake. Caffeine intake. Yeah, 1.3 times more likely caffeine intake. Uh, on feet, less than four hours a day, 1.7 times more likely. Inability to rise from a chair, 2.1 times more likely. If your resting pulse rate is greater than 80 beats per minute, 1.8 times more likely. It's amazing. Anyway, these are so I've got a relative qu- I've got risks. i a quick story. I'm not sure if I've said this on here before, but I'm going to say it anyway. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm not sure what you're doing there, Michael. I was uh, working with an orthopedic surgeon, and we had, a, um, we had a builder come in, and he had fractured his humerus, mm-hmm. okay? And the, the surgeon had set the bone um, and he came back I don't know maybe six weeks later pre-x with x-ray the surgeon looked at it and said hasn't healed at all he was like oh that's interesting 
the, the first question he asked the builder, and the builder's probably in the 30s, yeah. was, do you drink Coke? No. And the builder looked at him and said, no. I drink As in Coca-Cola? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I drink <laughs> Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> Does he really? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, all right. How much do you drink? And he said, oh, four, about four cans a day. Wow. And the, the surgeon said, you've got to stop. So he stopped, came back you know, a month-ish later, and then it was a full, fully healed. Why? Well, in c- particularly the cola drinks, mm. they've got a phosphoric acid, which is probably the um, the fizz part of it. Not not the carbonate, mm. but the fizzy part. Like the Colas have a different type of fizz. Mm. Hard to describe, unless, you, uh, I mean, unless, unless you're, you're a, a very uh, uh, up... To scratch with your fizz a connoisseur, yeah, of fizz cola. connoisseur. Anyway, so it's got phosphoric acid in it, and that draws the calcium out of your bone because so you've got high chelate, levels we'll of phosphate. Chelate, maybe or calcium and phosphate have a very intimate relationship, kind of like you and I, Michael. Oh, thank um, you. We're very intimately bound. Oh God. Okay, so, <laughs> so <laughs> if the phosphate, I'm not enjoying <laughs> this conversation. <laughs> if the phosphate <laughs> levels go up in the blood, the calcium has to go up with it, and where does it come from? Pull from bone. Wow. And so they pull it from bone. Therefore, wow. in his case, the calcium is not there to allow him to... Um, Be able to deposit it into the bone. Into the bone, into the fracture site yeah. to lay down to heal it. Wow. That's crazy. So, just really quickly, one minute. The other things that would impact osteoporotic okay. would be things okay. like... Let's talk about... Uh, I'd say the very first thing is that when it comes to osteoporosis, it's more common in women than in men. Okay? That's the first thing. Post-menopausal. Okay, postmenopausal, and, bec- and this is the reason why postmenopausal is because this has to do with estrogen. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so estrogen is protective for bones, and if estrogen is reduced, then bones are more susceptible to osteoporosis. Now, remember, osteoporosis is a balance, is an imbalance, I should say, between osteoblasts and osteoclasts. Right. So normal bone remodeling, ba- blasts build the bone up, clasts break it down. As you get older, inevitably, the blasts get less functional and the clasts, for some reason, get more functional. And you just get, or at least the blasts get less functional and you get more breaking down and building up. On a background also, that generally as you age, the diet changes. So, uh, usually the elderly are less likely to have a a balanced diet. Yes. Whether it's probably economics or just they logistically can't get to the shops as much Mm -hmm. and they're less mobile so you've got that working against them as well so if you look at the stats um, by 80 years of age uh, 27% of of individuals will have low bone mass and 70% have osteoporosis of either the hip spine or forearm Um, you know that's that's high right so and how's this in women living in nursing homes 36% of those um, that have a hip fracture will die within 12 months. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, that's terrible. It's, it is. Um, and that can be the demise of many, many people. Often. Because of yeah. it's, such a, it's such a big fracture and it's such a debilitating fracture and it, it just drops the mobility and whether there's on, on the background of maybe a psychological change. Infection, lack of movement, yeah. the amount of energy required for the healing process. So it's Terrible. So if we look at estrogen deficiency, right? And so, so postmenopausal, for example... Um, it's the it's probably the main cause of bone loss for women post menopause, mm. right? Uh, and and obviously after menopause, it's obvious that the estrogen levels drop. 
Now, the reason why this is the case is because there are estrogen receptors on osteoblasts and estrogen receptors on osteoclasts. And in actual facts, funnily enough, the estrogen receptors on osteoblasts stimulate the cortical bone to be produced. So that's that dense bone on the outside, right? This is actually independent of estrogen itself and actually responds in, in results of strain and impact or stress and so right. forth. Okay. So you can actually stimulate the estrogen receptors without the estrogen, funnily enough. But obviously, with estrogen, it stimulates the osteoblast to build bone up, okay? Um, estrogen also prolongs osteoblast activity and osteocyte survival. So osteocytes are the, are the cells yeah, that are yeah. already embedded in the bone, and if more of them that are present, the more maintenance that they can, they can uh, produce. That's right, and it does this. It protects them by actually stopping apoptosis, so that programmed cell death. Wow. Um, women it's who take uh, aromatase therapy... So, do you know what aromatase therapy is for? Well, this is a hormone replacement therapies. That's right. So, um, for breast cancer, they're at a higher risk for fragility fractures as well because oh, of so they're blocking. It's not hormone replacement; it's hormone Sorry. blocking. Blocking. That's right. Because obviously, a lot like of breast tamo- cancers, like tamoxifen. Yeah. So, ho- yeah. So, uh, a lot of breast cancers can be hormone induced, or or at least not maybe not hormone induced. I should say, um, exacerbated yeah. by hormones. Right. So, uh, the aromatase therapy can block estrogen. Um, calcium supplementation for osteoporosis seems to help, but it's really modest. Uh, it seems to be significant, but really modest effects. Um, because that was a big thing when, you know, a lot of these treatments first came out with osteoporosis, like high, high levels of calcium carbonate, like calcitrate, and then your, um, the the remodeling decreasing the remodeling like with the Fosimax which is a drug that stops kind of that osteoclast activity mm. and but it's yeah like you said more recent studies have shown that maybe it's not doing as much as we once thought and yeah. probably having huge amounts of calcium isn't good isn't good for other reasons you know kidneys uh, kidneys and atherosclerosis and so forth yeah exactly very true I I got an important well no, it's not important I think it's interesting do you know your bone actually produces hormones has an endocrine function. So your bone produces hormones. One's called FGF23, and it regulates phosphate metabolism, unsurprisingly. That's mm. one of the salts that's deposited into your bones. And it releases something called osteocalcin, which actually is involved in insulin sensitivity. There, there you go. go. So in energy d- uh, expenditure and so forth. It actually stimulates testosterone synthesis. So it would make sense. Because yeah. you think the, bone, the growth of your bone will be... Very closely regulated with it, testosterone. Mm-hmm. All right. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, we could go on forever. Yeah. So we should probably come to we an end. We probably should have spoken about fractures, but I think we're too late. Now, an hour and 36 is... You want to talk about fractures? Well, just really quickly. Fractures is basically a break in the bone. Um, can happen in all different ways, different directions, different types of bones. Sorry, tops of fractures. It can be a fracture that goes through the skin, which is generally known as the open fracture. Sometimes they refer it as compound fracture. Mm-hmm. Anything that's not coming out of the skin is a closed fracture. Uh, fracture through the completely through the bone, so now you have pieces, either you know two or many. It's going to be a complete fracture, opposed to ones that are just cracked partly through the bone is a, a incomplete fracture. Yeah, um, that could be you know stress fractures or green stick fractures. Then the fractures can be further termed based on the way that the fracture line runs. So this could be, uh, you know, oblique fractures or um, longitudinal yeah. or straight across. 
And then if they break into many pieces, what's that known as? Commuted? Commuted. Yeah. Commuted? I think that's it. Yeah, some of that. And then basically um, looking at the way that the fracture that is then aligned would determine whether it's stayed in place or it's, you know, out of place now. And that would require... Um, the doctor, the physician, the surgeon to realign it because you, you know we've, we've splintered we've splintered bones historically for thousands of years. Mm. There's evidence that we knew that we needed to splinter a bone, a broken bone, for thousands of years. Mm. So we knew that we need to realign, reset, uh, which yeah, is bone setters, which is obviously very important. Yeah. Um, you know, there's many different ways. I mean, it's a whole podcast to talk about, you know, wire fixation, screw fixation, plate fixation. Um, so you could be external in, fixation, internal, external, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there's many different types uh, of ways to discuss p- fixing bones. Um, and basically, the way that the bone heals um, really parallels that of the way the bone develops. So, yeah. So basically, when the, the the bone fractures, you get a big bleed in, you get a big hemorrhage, a big uh, hematoma mm-hmm. th- between the ends. And it then it forms like a blood clot. Okay, so the first phase is really a blood clot forming between the two ends. And then bone osteoprogenitor cells come into that area, start to lay down, and you get kind of like a cartilage. So you get a kind of a, a cartilage callus formation. So mm-hmm. it lays down the framework. So the probably the collagen framework, just like we saw in the, um, the way it develops in the fetus, with the what was it called the endochondro yeah so it lays down this kind of cartilage callus to begin with it's got no strength at this point mm. so if you were to put any kind of pressure on it it would just fall apart and break again yeah but then the um as i said the progenitor cell will come in and then it will start laying down the calcium and then you get start to get strength in it but the the, the way that it w- it's arranged is very um haphazard mm. and it's um, very swollen yes and so then it would look quite deformed and so that would probably be structurally okay but it would look probably quite deformed and then you'd get the remodeling phase which is to bring it back to its so if the bone's not set properly um, the remodeling phase can really result in a pretty damaged looking ugly looking bone and that's probably why they will continue to x- x-ray you until they're happy with the alignment. That's right. And they probably would re-break it. Potentially, if, yeah. If um, it hasn't aligned properly. Yeah. I think that's enough. Yeah. What do you reckon? Are you exhausted? That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, you could get, you could talk about any of these things for hours and hours and hours. But I think we're done with bone. We might talk about joints and os- osteoarthritis next episode. Yeah, we'll go to joints and different types of joints in the body next podcast. And then we'll probably move out of... The um, musculoskeletal. And for our Australian listeners, we're, Matt and I are uh, doing a radio show as of next week on ABC. Hopefully. Hopefully. Should be fine. We haven't fun. done it yet. We haven't done it. Our first episode. But that's uh, the plan. Was it 9 p.m.? 9 p.m. Uh, Brisbane time. ABC radio. We're going to talk Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's ABC radio show, I suppose. We're going to talk about the human body. We're going to talk about... Segment. segment it's right. a segment. We're going to talk about, you know, condensed versions of what we talk about on the podcast. Again, if you've made it to this one hour, 41 minute point right now, 
and you're still listening, it means you and enjoy you what we're something. yeah. Well, it means you've enjoyed what we're talking about, and you should follow us on Twitter. I'm at Mikey Todd at M I C K E Y T O D. Oh, you can spell it. Or no? I think so. And at Dr. Bartox, D R B A R T O X. You can also follow us on Facebook, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mark's Medical Podcast. Please give us a nice five star rating on iTunes. Leave a comment if you like. Make sure it's nice. Uh, if you're studying for exams, hopefully this is helpful. Uh, or you can access our, uh, uh, what is it, our YouTube page. We've got over 200 videos talking about human anatomy, human physiology, pathophysiology, pharmacology. If you want to brush up, if you're studying for exam, this is what we give our students. Have a listen. If you've got any feedback for us, send us an email, which is gubiosciences, so g-u-b-i-o-s-c-i-e-n-c-e-s at gmail.com. Send us an email, ask us a question, correct us, tell Matt he's an idiot, whatever you like, <laughs> and um, we'll see you soon. Oh, before you go... Uh, Me or the listeners? Oh, either. Yeah. Uh, I've got a quick question. Why did the skeleton not do well at... Talk, this is talking on exams. Mm-hmm. Why did the skeleton not do well in the, the med exam? Oh, why? He didn't have the stomach for it. Ha-ha! 